the interview for this episode took place in late November 2022, two months prior to the devastating earthquake in southeastern Turkey. A few months after his Justice and Development Party, or AKP, won Turkey's general elections in 2011, then Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan called on his fellow citizens to confront the past. Starting into his second decade in power, Erdogan proclaimed that those who do not confront their past cannot have a bright future. In the years that followed, several prominent sites of state-sponsored violence targeting ethnic and religious minorities and political opponents of the regime were slated to become memorials and museums. What inspired this desire to confront the past? What were these sites of memory? And how did the violent histories of these sites complicate these initiatives? To delve into these questions and more, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Arai Scheiler from the University of Hamburg to discuss his recent book, Victims of Commemoration, The Architecture and Violence of Confronting the Past in Turkey. Arai, thank you for joining this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you very much indeed, Rick. I'm delighted to be in conversation with you. Um, your own scholarship on North African communities in France has really kind of helped uh, refocus memory and commemoration on dignity and justice rather than only focusing on narrative and representation. And my book contributes to that kind of shift of focus as well. So I feel especially excited about talking to a scholar like yourself, and I'm grateful to you for your interest. To begin with, I was fascinated by your, the points that you made on another podcast about how some of the connections you made between what became this book really go back to this um, period of time where you had a grant or a scholarship and you studied in Vilnius. And uh, I was hoping you could go back over that a little bit and discuss what were some of the insights that you gained uh, that, uh, that contributed to, to the book. Sure. So the book is on Turkey, of course, and um, that's also where I was born and raised. But the, the kind of methodological origins of the book lie in that unlikely place that you mentioned, Vilnius. So in 2009, uh, when I was still a master's student, I won a scholarship to attend a summer school on memorialization uh, in Lithuania's uh, capital, Vilnius, and there I encountered a kind of rich landscape of memory politics that I thought had quite interesting and unexpected, actually, resonances with uh, what was at the time happening in Turkey. So Turkey at the time was seeing um, kind of discourses of confronting the past or geçmişle yüzleşme in Turkish and uh, kind of reckoning with the past, geçmişle hesaplaşma. Um, kind of becoming mainstream and prevalent. And these discourses had been initiated in the mid to late 1990s uh, by activists and intellectuals. Uh, but now, uh, in the late 2000s, uh, the AKP government was embracing this language of um, kind of confronting the past, reckoning with the past. And that was happening uh, kind of near uh, simultaneously with, um, you know, Turkey's kind of officially becoming a candidate for EU membership um, in the context of, of which the government had launched a series of democratization initiatives called Açılım or Açılımlar in plural, uh, promising to address uh, long-standing issues that uh, have been affecting the country's um, kind of historically marginalized communities like Alevis, Kurds, and non-Muslims. So 
um, because much of this kind of historical marginalization um, actually revolved around state-sponsored violence, uh, the government was now having to acknowledge uh, the crimes of its predecessors, as it were, um, but n- not seldom through references to an alleged pre-nation state Ottoman <laughs> tolerance and multiculturalism. Meanwhile, members of those marginalized communities and uh, their political um, allies were campaigning for the transformation of sites of state-sponsored violence into memorial museums. And these campaigns um, soon became a kind of focal point for testing the sincerity of of the government's willingness uh, to acknowledge uh, histories of state-sponsored violence. And for listeners, uh, specifically, there are three such sites uh, that were at the forefront of memorialization campaigns. And these are, of course, the ones I discuss in the book. Ulucanlar Prison uh, in Turkey's capital Ankara, uh, Diyarbakir Prison in Turkey's largest predominantly Kurdish inhabited uh, city of the same name, Diyarbakir, and uh, the Madmak Hotel in Sivas, uh, Sivas being a city in central eastern Turkey. So Ulucanlar Prison is associated with uh, the, the revolutionary left as um, it was where uh, leaders of Turkey's 1968 student movement were hanged uh, under the influence of the military. Uh, But more recently, in 2000, uh, a violent military crackdown uh, took place there and killed and maimed tens of uh, political inmates uh, who were protesting against the introduction of solitary confinement. The Arbakir prison is where pro-Kurdish activists um, uh, were tortured by the 1980s uh, junta. And finally, uh, Madumak Hotel in Sivas is where an arson attack targeted the participants of an Alevi-run culture festival in 1993, um, sort of before the the eyes of a law enforcement uh, that was completely passive and thousands of onlookers. Um, the activist uh, campaigns that had emerged throughout the 2000s uh, for turning each of these sites into museums um, showed that uh, space, material space, architectural space, was central to discourses and practices of confronting the past. But a critical perspective that takes spatiality seriously as a kind of a realm of memory politics onto itself had uh, yet to emerge um, by the late 2000s. And it was my urge, therefore, to kind of contribute this sort of uh, spatially focused perspective. So how I first felt this urge uh, to take spatiality seriously, again, returns us to Vilnius and the summer school I attended there. Uh, Much of the summer school involved visits to sites, um, you know, embroiled in histories of uh, organized violence. Of course, some of these sites involved Soviet histories, uh, which uh, were significant to Lithuania, a nation kind of trying to find its feet in the post-Cold War era. But Lithuania had already witnessed, actually, two decades of, you know, a liberal nationalist boost in self-confidence that followed its its independence uh, from the Soviet Union. And now a kind of more self-critical and reflexive memory politics was emerging, especially with respect to the Jewish history that Vilnius had. And its Jewish communities obviously were largely annihilated um, during the Holocaust. And now Lithuania's complicity in that annihilation was being uh, reflected on. 
and and this kind of self-reflection was taking place also in the context of the country's kind of integration into the EU, um, not unlike the process underway in, in Turkey at the time. Simultaneously, interestingly, uh, a sort of imperial nationalist revivalism, but also at work in in Vilnius, with references to uh, the alleged tolerance, and magnificence, and benevolence of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which is a state that, that existed between the mid thirteenth uh, and eighteenth uh, centuries. Uh, so I could here see clear parallels with the kind of Ottoman imperial nostalgia that was then becoming prevalent in Turkey. All of that prompted me to kind of approach the liberal politics of memory, not just kind of in terms of the democratization promises attached to them, but also kind of as the stuff of, of new powers, power struggles uh, that are kind of entangled in rather than distinct from the violent uh, histories being um, memorialized. Now, as part of this summer school, I think uh, more relevant methodologically was what we actually did, because um, a lot of what we did was based on visits to uh, specific sites, talking to, well, uh, kind of designers of memo- memorials and monuments, artists behind them, users of memorials and, and, and monuments, etc. And here we really kind of encountered uh, a kind of significance that monuments can have that really transcends the intentions of of of, of uh, the people who actually first authored them. For example, we encountered the Soviet era monument um, who, that initially gr- kind of was designed, obviously, to glorify a brotherly comradeship, um, which was initially slated for demolition, like many other Soviet monuments from the same era uh, when you know Lithuania became uh, an independent republic. But it was. Um, in the in the 2000s, claimed by Vilnius's uh, gay community because they simply liked the way uh, the monument looked, <laughs> and they successfully ca- campaigned to preserve this monument as a monument to gay pride. We also encountered a group of artists who uh, had campaigned successfully. Uh, to uh, kind of uh, erect a, a kind of Frank Zappa monument, who is just someone that d- they really like, a musician whose work they liked, who has nothing to do with Lithuania's history, whether that history is Soviet or has to do with Holocaust, etc. But they just wanted a monument to an artist that they really loved. And that proved really difficult, actually, because uh, the authorities, although this was supposed to be a liberal nation, they really came up with all sorts of reasons why this monument shouldn't be built, um, referencing things like public safety, safety, health and safety, etc. Um, so here I saw how um, kind of monuments and memorialization were really a realm for social and political organizing, and often a kind of organizing that transcended pre-existing communitarian allegiances attached to memory politics, involving, you know, something like... <laughs> Frank Zappa fans and, and the gay community, as well as, of course, those who are in favor of reckoning with the Holocaust or reflecting on the Soviet era. So my experience in Vilnius prompted me to develop an approach that kind of considers materiality and spatiality, not simply as reflective, but rather as generative of the politics of violence and memory, and uh, led me to use anthropological methods and to observe life in and around the three sites that uh, my book uh, discusses, so as to take uh, their physicality um, seriously. Is this an openness that's being forced uh, on the government because it it feels like, well, it's got to meet certain criteria if it's going to be accepted uh, uh, within the European community? Uh, Is it... uh, 
uh, is there, do you see a sincerity in, in, in what's, what's going on, especially if it doesn't, doesn't last that long? Um, I mean, how do you interpret, is it being, it, to me, it seems like it's being almost pushed on the government from the outside, an expectation from the outside, outside, or maybe even from the ground up from these different communities that, that, uh, uh, as you mentioned, had been engaged for for a while, maybe in a politics of recognition uh, in Turkey. I mean, is this is this a government that's being pushed from the outside, pushed from below, and in the end, it pushes back, and there's only so far it's it's, it's willing to go. It hasn't evolved that that uh, that that much in terms of the, of the memory work that it's done. Um, now, um, again, as you're indicating, uh, this was a time. In the late 2000s, early early 2010s, when Turkey was seen as a and, and globally seen as a beacon of democracy in the Middle East, uh, I mean, it's hard for us to uh, kind of uh, remember that time from our current vantage point. But this was a time when government representatives were invited to publish op-eds in the likes of the Guardian, Newsweek, um, you know, praising uh, Turkey's democratization. Uh, and this was very much uh, when, you know, in uh, in 2011, uh, the authorities first turned Ulucanlar prison, which is one of the sites I discuss, into a memorial museum proper and redesigned the site of the Sivas arson attack, which is or was back then called the Madumak Hotel, as a kind of commemorative uh, slash educational space um, called the Science and Culture Center. Uh, with a memory corner uh, dedicated to uh, the uh, atrocity. Um, around the same time, um, senior cabinet members, including um, you know Erdogan himself, who was then prime minister, pledged to close the Diyarbakir prison um, or to even turn it into a museum, although this never materialized. So all three sites I discuss in this book are uh, or were at the heart of campaigns uh, for site-specific memorial museums, but also at the heart of this moment when uh, the kind of uh, liberal approach to to confronting the past um, is really kind of acknowledging the importance of these sites and 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 uh, wanting to kind of manifest or or yield certain manifestations of uh, this acknowledgement. Um, and uh, Ulucanlar became a, a museum proper uh, that is open to the public. Um, uh, the Science and Culture Center that was set up and, in, in place of the Madumak Hotel um, is also actually a, a space now that is open to public visits, uh, although it's not a museum proper. And the Arbukir prison uh, remains uh, a prison. And I discuss uh, these different kind of use uh, kind of scenarios and their implications in, in the book. And um, um, so my my interest again in this moment and and the kind of spa- through the kind of particular spatial focus that I that I uh, adopted uh, in the book is um, to in a way um, leave uh, to to one side um, you know whether a building has become a, a museum proper or not, which I think um, I fear uh, kind of embroils us back in that kind of idea of certain um, kind of emblems or, or symbols of democratization being achieved successfully or not, right? Uh, again, therefore, that I, I fear uh, kind of um, put, 
places us back in that liberal kind of framing of of confronting the past. Rather, I wanted to basically um, kind of go there, do the fieldwork, uh, regardless of whether a, 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 muse- a place has become a museum or not. And as I, I said, we have in this book three cases that represent a quite healthy spectrum uh, of, 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 of that kind of range of things that, that such buildings, uh, can become. One being a museum proper, another one being somewhere kind of, uh, halfway, uh, between a museum and a non-museum, and the final one being still kind of a prison. So what I wanted to do is to, to actually do this fieldwork, to, to look at what's happening at these sites, um, on a daily basis. Uh, to take their materiality and spatiality uh, seriously so that I don't actually repeat methodologically uh, the problem that I begin with a certain abstract liberal ideal of confronting the past, but rather begin from uh, the ground up, right? So kind of embrace that idea of that uh, kind of uh, bottom-up nature of of what I think um, uh, the politics of confronting the past uh, should be in my own methodology and through my own methodology as well, to, to look at uh, the daily goings-on at these sites, to look at uh, how people mobilize around them, to, to, to actually observe um, kind of uh, commemorative grassroots uh, kind of commemorations that are taking place there, as well as, you know, the public's visits uh, in those sites that are actually open to visits, etc. to use the functional diversity that characterizes uh, the three sites for appraising the, the kind of diverse um, sorts of political work. Uh, that they generate. Okay. I couldn't resist going off in that liberal tangent. <laughs> Sorry. I was just intrigued by that context because I remember it vividly and there was like a concurrent within Turkey that was really all on board with going in the direction of European integration and um, like, well, maybe in the end, um, it was a minority current. Um, but, um, and that, that was the context that you really came of age in. So I just, you know, really didn't know, uh, know much about that particular context. Um, but clearly it motivates the government to at least get behind the transformation of two of the three sites into, into memorial sites, at least to a certain extent. But you mentioned that when it does this, it kind of neuters them, right? It strips them of, 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 of the, of the complexity of, of the past that, uh, that that you find in these these places and I, I I was hoping you could talk about how do they when they get transformed into sites of memory how do they get co-opted in the process so in transforming both uh, the uh, Madumak hotel that is the site of the Sivas arson attack and Ulujanar prison in in, in Ankara um, the authorities uh, were kind of um, adamant, really, to treat violence as a thing of the past, as you're saying, and, and to progress kind of society into a, a kind of uh, avowedly brighter, uh, more democratic future. And this strategy has seen them uh, kind of portray the violence that took place at these sites as perpetrated against the whole of Turkey, as it were. And that's what I call the nationalization of victimhood. Um, in Sivas, for example, the memory corner that is now situated inside um, the site of the Sivas arson attack uh, that's been turned into this building that's called uh, the um, Science and Culture Center displays a list of victims' names 
um, that includes not only the tens of festival guests uh, that were killed uh, by the arsonists, but also two individuals who are known to have been members of the crowd outside. So uh, also the statements uh, kind of um, accompanying this victim's list speaks of the arson attack as a kind of sad, you know, sorrowful incident uh, that targeted the unity of Turkey. Right. So these are the more overtly problematic aspects of the official commemorative attitude uh, that I in the book call uh, nationalizing um, victimhood, which, as you say, kind of neutralizes uh, the kind of sociopolitical specificity um, of what actually went down um, in, at these sites. But during my fieldwork at um, uh, the building in Sivas and to a certain extent also at uh, Ulujanlar, I observed further problems uh, that um, otherwise may not be so obvious. Uh, for example, at both sites, there is a, a kind of... Uh, there was, at, at the time of my research, a salient air of um, provisionality, right, uh, which the authorities presented to the public as a democratic quality. So visitors to the sites um, that, again, are open to, to the public uh, were told by employees that each site is an unfinished project and that visitor feedback is being collected so that um, these sites may be improved moving forward. In the specific case of the Madumak Hotel, um, much of the building actually is empty. It's just the ground floor and the mezzanine above it that has been transformed into um, what's now called the Science and Culture Center. The rest of the floors remain as they were at the point of the interior uh, strip out uh, that took place after the hotel was expropriated. So during my fieldwork, I realized that employees of the Science and Culture Center were presenting these empty floors to visitors as evidence of uh, you know, how, how open the authorities were to suggestions from the public regarding what the site uh, could or should become in the future. But the interesting thing is that, you know, let alone kind of moving society uh, towards a democratic future, these emphases on provisionality, on the kind of unfinished, incomplete quality of the building actually extended the violent history into the future. They, for example, prompted far-right groups, uh, as I discuss in the books, to speculate that the site will soon become a place of Alevi worship closed to the wider public, dovetailing with a kind of conspiracy theoretical reading of the of the arson attack that sees it as an external plot orchestrated by kind of foreign powers against Turkey's unity. And, and that sees uh, even some of the victims as uh, pawns in that kind of conspiracy. So that, that was another point that I was interested in. So if you if you have these spaces that are left unfinished, and uh, and this is supposed to invite participation, uh, it's supposed to suggest an openness uh, about these sites of memory, and in the end, it just fuels uh, suspicions uh, and feeds on conspiratorial thinking. You also mentioned that there's a long history of, and in fact, I found myself reading into your notes at the bottom of the page extensively because I thought it was really interesting. You were pointing out back to the creation of modern Turkey that there's this long history of conspiratorial thinking. Indeed, and this is, as you say, you know what I discuss in my in my footnotes, which are quite extensive, uh, which I didn't want uh, to kind of uh, overshadow the kind of main 
kind of empirical kind of stuff of the of the book uh the sev paranoia as uh, it's known right uh is the kind of if you want the origin of this kind of conspiratorial thinking uh on the kind of institutional level in terms of state politics because um there is uh the sev uh kind of um agreement uh that uh kind of marked the transi- transition uh from the ottoman empire into into um uh, the republic of turkey uh that is known uh, well to uh have been uh, a, a kind of national international agreement that um came came about in in the aftermath of the first world war uh where european powers um um those who who actually uh, were victorious in that war uh against germany and uh, the ottoman empire um kind of um came up with a way of uh, essentially you know uh, taking bits of the ottoman empire under their control and 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 then obviously this is uh, known to have been what the national the turkish national campaign right what is in turkey uh, known as uh, the uh, war of liberation or in national historiographies known as the turkish war of liberation essentially the turkish national campaign uh, is known to have been waged against this kind of uh, sev uh, agreement of 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 the kind of uh, dividing up of the ottoman empire um which uh, then no, although obviously uh, uh, a lot of that was then reversed uh, through the turkish national campaign of 1919 um, uh, and uh, 1922. So between those dates uh, is when the national campaign took place. Um, but nevertheless, so although it's been reversed, uh, the, it's turned into a paranoia, right? So this is what's called the Sevres paranoia. That uh, is this idea that uh, foreign powers are continually working to divide Turkey up uh, amongst themselves uh that uh this is like a continuous threat uh that turkey is facing now in my book i obviously situate the conspiratorial thinking that i encounter uh in places like Sivas within that tradition but also show now interestingly how that actually uh gets uh kind of interwoven with uh, a more again liberal kind of approach uh, to confronting the past, all these discourses of reckoning with the past, which are supposed to be about liberal liberalization, democratization, but which then end up being really kind of um, interwoven, interlaced with that longer tradition and overtly more nationalistic tradition of uh, the Sevres, uh, the so-called Sevres paranoia. So that's, I guess, my my contribution here. Uh, I guess it would be um, kind of. Uh, helpful uh, to give some examples uh, for 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 the listeners. So, for example, uh, there's a complete lack of historical information at the Science and Culture Center in Sivas. That is the site of the arson attack. Um, you know, you don't have any signage or labels, or uh, the personnel working there have uh, not been really instructed uh, to 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 give any information about what happened where. Uh, that is, you know, except the one memory corner. Uh, that is situated in the in the building, and that is the only kind of overtly uh, the, the only element that is overtly linked and overtly commemorates uh, the events in the state's own way. So the um, uh, but you know other parts, many parts of the building 
what I noticed was that many other parts of the building uh, also drew, also drew uh, great interest from the visitors. Uh, and that is due to the, vi- the widely circulated images and testimonies uh, that have popularized, uh, you know, what took place in what part of the building, when, uh, etc. during the, the atrocity. So visitors uh, sought information uh, that was specific to, to various parts of the building, which is not at all provided by the institution. And this lack of information created uh, an, a kind of epistemic uh, hole that invited speculation and conspiracy theorizing. Uh, on top of all that, uh, during the activist commemorations um, that are held there uh, at the site uh, annually, uh, by those kind of upholding the legacy of the victims and therefore underscoring the sociopolitical specificity of the atrocity, um, the law enforcement actually goes to great lengths to separate the commemorative procession from the rest of the city. So on the one hand, there's supposedly tolerance uh, and incorporation of this kind of activist commemoration within the, the life of the city, and it's it's permitted. On the other hand, it's strictly spatially and materially separated from the rest of the city. Um, so um, this kind of spatial configuration uh, that isolates uh, those seeking commemorative justice um, from the rest of the you know, ordinary, as it were, residents of, of Sivas uh, reinforces the idea that those bent on remembering are outsiders or foreign elements. Even Uh, the fact that many Alevis who uh, travel to Sivas for the annual commemoration indeed live outside of the city, uh, which is a fact, uh, is manipulated as evidence of their being outsiders. Uh, Whereas, of course, the very reason why they live outside of Sivas in the first place today is a result of the atrocities (laughs) like the arson attack, uh, which which led them to flee those kinds of parts of Turkey like Sivas. So. Many of them fled to other parts of Turkey or even to Europe. Uh, and it was there that they, for the first time, found the opportunity to to, to organize um, around such causes as the Sivas arson attack and remembering its victims. So once they regrouped in places like, say, Germany or elsewhere in Turkey, like Ankara, uh, they began to travel to Sivas to commemorate the arson attack. But um, I noticed that uh, during these commemorations that were supposedly being tolerated and given a space, um, they were now cast as foreigners, not unlike the foreign powers that were supposedly behind, uh, you know, uh, the the, the kind of SEV agreement and since then have been behind repeatedly, supposedly, uh, such violent episodes as the arson attack itself, uh, you know, kind of supposedly plotting uh, these uh, kind of plots to harm Turkey's unity. So my point in uh, my point is that uh, kind of addressing uh, these issues um, uh, plaguing the work of memory and justice um, requires that we understand uh, violence and commemoration as not ontologically distinct from one another, but rather as entangled in one another, and that we focus their entanglement on the materiality and spatiality of sites of violence because they uh, display both continuities with longer-standing histories, such as you know the Sev uh, affair, etc., but also uh, new ways uh, in which they are incorporated into kind of uh, ideas of liberal tolerance and democratization. I know I keep I keep veering off here, but at the same time, I'm wondering: like, is this just a a, a regime that is struggling to de- deal with its own diversity? Uh, and uh, um, 
you take a site like uh, the uh, the Science and Cultural Center, and they don't want it to be politicized. And so they'll devote a memory corner to it, but it includes um, everyone, even people that lit the building on fire, right? And, uh, um, but it, it, what, sh- what stunned me when I was reading that section was that the people who are working there weren't even trained or weren't encouraged to provide any kind of education, and that the people who would venture into the space and and I thought you made a really interesting point about how the building was just completely uninviting. Right, <laughs> people didn't know what it what it was from the outside. Um, and then when you go in, it's not like you have a trained staff that 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 is there to educate you uh, about uh, uh, at least about what happened to the original building. Uh, in fact, they're discouraged to, to, to do that. And people are almost trying to piece it together on their own. There's a natural curiosity. Uh, I really like that part when you were pointing out how people are kind of gravitating towards these stairwells and they're trying to uh, see, well, what, what actually happened to, to the victims and trying to figure things out for themselves because there was no one to really explain. It. Then if you did explain it, you, you get in trouble. Um, so to me, it was almost like kind of like lip paying lip service to uh to this incident that affected this particular community um and uh you transform this building but then when it came down to it you're not really trying to train anyone to to educate anyone about about what happened and then when these uh these um gatherings take place for the levy community you you want to keep as much distance from them from that from that community in the building as possible because you don't want it to get politicized again this is the point the the reason why i I discuss a bunch of sites three sites in this book not just uh the uh hotel the modemak hotel turned um science and culture center in sivas but also uljanar prison because there you see uh well obviously each site has its specificities in sivas you could argue as you have indicated rick that uh it's not a museum and there's a kind of certain uh, uh, uh um avoidance if you want of 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 certain questions in ulujanlar there's much more of an overtly comfortable kind of narrative uh, that we are being uh, presented um um this is a museum that is kind of uh that presents itself as a museum that confronts the history of the coups, the coup d'etats that uh, Turkey uh, witnessed in the late uh, 20th century. Um, but uh, the way it actually presents uh, these coups, this, this history of coups, uh, is that they were um, kind of plotted against, again, a kind of uh, idea, a generic idea of democracy, right? Uh, and and this is again uh, maybe something that is uh, familiar to us in 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 the aftermath of uh, the coup, the, the most recent, the latest coup attempt that took place in July 2016, uh, with which some listeners may be familiar. Um, so what I discuss in the book is uh, a kind of precursor to this kind of um, um, response that the state has had, the government has had to uh, this to the latest coup attempt that took place on the 15th of July, uh, 2016, which has also been kind of uh, presented as a, as a coup against democracy. Uh, that is democracy uh, in the sense of basically going to the ballot box to, to vote, right? 
whereas I try to kind of show how uh, our notions of democracy might actually involve and should involve um, uh, the work of pol- pol- uh, you know, political organizing, mobilizing, and indeed certain ideologies, specific ideologies that were actually targeted by the violent histories that I, I discuss in the book. So in uh, the Ulujanlar Museum, uh, prison museum, right? So uh, right-wing leaders... Uh, who were, in fact, among the instigators of some of the violent histories, uh, uh, the most violent outbreaks uh, against uh, Turkey's marginalized communities, are remembered side by side with revolutionary figures. Um, Whereas, actually, if you look at uh, the kind of uh, work that secured uh, when when the prison was was evacuated in in, in 2006, the work uh, of organizing, mobilizing that secured the preservation of that prison um, as a kind of space of memory and its eventual transformation into a prison, who who, uh, did do that kind of work was actually the veteran revolutionary leftist uh, organizations in collaboration with the Chamber of Architects, uh, which you could say is also kind of left-leaning. So when the prison was shut down in in 2006, uh, they organized a series of workshops and even a a kind of architecture competition to imagine what uh, the prison could be turned into. The first first reaction on the the part of the authorities uh, was to engage with this campaign and uh, they even promised to, to implement uh, the winning entry in that architecture competition. But at some point during the implementation phase, um, the um, revolutionary uh, leftists, uh, veteran leftists, you could say, uh, were, were sidelined. And the museum, uh, as we know it today, uh, came to be, which is, again, a space that remembers the coups that took place in the second half of the 20th century in Turkey, but does so by, by kind of glossing over the, the ideologies that they were enacted uh, for and against, right? So my argument here um, is not that this is an incorrect take on history and the correct version would have been to narrate it otherwise. Uh, My point here is that the historiographical correctness or incorrectness that we have in mind here must be based on who actually put in the political work of organizing and mobilizing to claim this space successfully and to what extent their extent their ideas are being reflected in the final outcome which in this case is virtually uh nil uh, the one item on exhibit that symbolizes uh this depoliticization and decontextualization most strikingly is the gallows. The museum displays the former prison's gallows behind bars to show that Turkey abolished the death penalty. Now, of course, the very reason why this particular gallows became infamous is that it was used in executing the three leading members of Turkey's 1968 revolutionary student movement. But this is not at all acknowledged at this exhibit. Um, the uh, associations set up by veteran members of that movement have actually campaigned for the museum to return uh, the gallows to them because they consider themselves to be the rightful heirs. Uh, indeed, they annually organize their own exhibition to commemorate, to commemorate the victims. And this is where they want the gallows to be displayed with their own historiography attached to it. So the, the, the political work of organizing mo- and mobilizing really uh, kind of uh, is what I would like to highlight here. And, and it actually does indeed continue to challenge the depol- depoliticization and decontextualization that we're, we're talking about.
So you mentioned that the media is is such an important part of of the defining of these spaces, uh, whether they're reporting on uh, uh, what's going on in a prison or uh, uh, they're uh, uh, reporting on uh, this arson attack at at the, at the hotel. Um, and we tend to think of, especially within the context that you're writing about, this context of democratization as the media, the media being a force in the direction of democratization, but it, it doesn't really seem to work that way, uh, at least in, in certain cases. Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the, the role of, of, of the media in shaping, uh, in shaping um, the meaning of these uh, sites of memory. Yes, that's a crucial question, Rick, and actually one that is uh, quite context-specific um, because in the context of the 1990s, uh, the question of the media was really kind of central to a certain idea of an expansion of the public sphere, right? So the early to mid-1990s, uh, uh, when the Sivas arson attack took place, uh, was a period when Turkey was supposedly witnessing this kind of expansion of the public sphere as it was now recovering from the violent 1980 coup d'etat. Uh, the culture festival uh, that was targeted in the arson attack was organized by representatives of the Alevi community very much to, to, to partake in this alleged expansion of the public sphere. The festival had previously organized, had been organized in the countryside in an Alevi village called Banas, and with a, an exclusively Alevism-oriented lineup of, of events and contributors. But now for the first time in 1993, the festival was being held in central Sivas, and the program and the participants were not only Alevism-related. So it was very much this kind of staking of a claim for a place in, a, in an allegedly expanding public sphere uh, that characterized the culture festival, um, and, um, and, and actually uh, staking this claim spatially, right? By going, by moving to central Sivas, uh, that was targeted in the arson attack. So privatization of media or specifically of, of radio and television, uh, which had only just taken place at the time, uh, was considered among the hallmarks of Turkey's expanding public sphere in the 1990s. How the arson attack unfolded uh, though, tells a, a darker story. Uh, so a private television network uh, that had just been set up um, uh, was broadcasting from the city during the arson attack. Uh, they indeed uh, bro broadcasted the, the arson attack uh, near live uh, from the scene. While intuition might assume that this was uh, conducive to the whole nation becoming aware of the atrocity, the broadcast had actually the opposite effect in a context where anti-Alevi discourse was rampant and many Alevi families, in fact, still hid their faith uh, for fear of discrimination and racist attacks. The broadcast, uh, therefore, exacerbated the horror of the attack uh, for these families. So several children from Alevi families uh, have since then shared um, 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 the, the kind of uh, testimony, the memory that when they first uh, found out that they were indeed Alevis was on the night when footage of the arson attack arrived at screens nationwide. The kids would see their parents react to the footage by saying they're burning us and would then ask uh, their parents, 
who are we? Who's us? Uh, to then be told we are Alevis. So that was really effectively the first time that many kids found out that they were in fact Alevis. So what's crucial here is that the television network uh, that was involved in this uh, in this um, affair uh, didn't just you know broadcast the atrocity as such, but also instigated it to a certain extent. Reporters from from this network had been asking provocative questions in public to some of the festival's guests with uh, crowds around them. And these crowds would then react angrily to the responses that the guests would give uh, with uh, the resulting tensions um, kind of significantly rising in the process. And obviously these microaggressions then kind of contributed to the arson that was also collectively perpetrated and spectated. So a kind of specific uh, visual, you could say televisual characteristic of the footage that was, that was broadcast was this emphasis on the thousands, uh, a visual emphasis on the thousands that converged around the Madamak Hotel. The crowd was visually made to replace the festival organizers and participants as the ideal public that constitutes the publicness of an expanded uh, public sphere. It was almost as if they had converged, you know, naturally and organically around this site as a public. But we now know that obviously that wasn't the case. And I owe this insight to uh, another visual producer, to you know, the director Medet Dilek, who produced a documentary on the arson attack titled uh, Narcolepsy. In this documentary, um, Dilek combines footage from mainstream media that we're familiar with with footage from the personal cameras of Alevi residents of Sivas, who in a way counter-documented the events from their own situated positionality. These were residents living in a particular neighborhood of Sivas, uh, which in fact has been known as the Alevi neighborhood, and their footage documents how they took to the streets in outrage at the violent de- developments um, that they saw and heard on the afternoon of the attack, but were then actively stopped um, by law enforcement from leaving their neighborhood on grounds that their arrival at the scene would create even bigger turmoil. Meanwhile, law enforcement, of course, was essentially giving free reign to the crowd outside the hotel. So watching this Alevi produced uh, counter-documentation against uh, the more popular images from the TV network shows us that the crowd outside the hotel were actively and visually given uh, this appearance of the ideal public. Um, Indeed, the morning after, leading state representatives such as the prime minister were asked about the casualties. And the first thing they said was, and I quote, thankfully, our people outside the hotel were unharmed. This kind of evidences the kind of spatial visual link that was being forged between the crowd outside the hotel and the idea of the public. And this was, again, a televisual kind of link, right? So publicness um, actually has since continued to be controversial um, uh, upon, you know, following uh, the, the hotel's transformation into science and culture center. Now that the building was expropriated, i.e. it became public property, uh, the authorities attempted to use this new status of the building to prevent activists uh, from commemorating uh, the atrocity there annually. They told activists that the building had now become uh, Kamusal Alan, 
or public space in Turkish, um, in the sense of you know, state-sanctioned space. Memory activists challenged this restrictive notion of publicness and put into practice their own idea of public space in the process. They, for example, mobilized a notion of meydan, which is the word for uh, public square, but which also happens to be a, a kind of a notion specific to Alevism, Uh, that has socio-judicial significance. It's a spatial institution in, in the Alevi faith uh, where wrongdoings are debated and addressed collectively and often also with a view towards reparation rather than punition. Activists referred to the forecourt of the bu- building as a maidan, um, therefore kind of mobilizing this notion from their situated position to confront notions of kamusal alan, or public space as state-sanctioned space, which again bears the resonances of how the event was also kind of televisually mediated in, in the 90s. I think you try to make a point too, that there's a long history of Alevi martyrdom. But if you look at the how Alevis get galvanized and how they return to Sivas in greater numbers to commemorate what happened, You misunderstand that if you if you see it in terms of this history of of, of a community that 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 sees themselves as a, a victimized population that that you really need to understand how the media shapes that that identity uh, and uh, for people maybe who didn't necessarily um, weren't necessarily. Uh, 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 I don't know, politicized by that identity. Um, at least that's that's what I took away from that. That that uh, that it's in watching that, and maybe like you said, in part by the, their own coverage. That uh, on the one hand, you have this public space that that gets claimed for other groups, the right, conser- religious conservatives, and at the same time, levies get politicized. Uh, maybe they get driven from the country, but it's that that identity that draws them back to that space to try to reclaim it. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that that idea has come across uh, to you, Rick, uh, because that's, uh, well, that was very much my intention is, well, first of all, to acknowledge the importance of martyrdom to Alevism as a general kind of framework, uh, kind of religious framework, um, but also to show that that is taking specific effects in that specific context Uh, of Sivas. Um, and those effects are informed by spatial knowledge of the city, actually. And this is where things become more complicated because that spatial knowledge, as we've said, is also visually mediated, uh, etc. So uh, for listeners, uh, maybe it's useful to explain uh, the idea, the kind of specific idea of martyrdom that has an important place in Alevi, in the Alevi faith. So Martyrdom here is distinguished by a kind of non-violent defense of justice before the op- oppressor. So Alevism considers as martyrs those figures uh, who have passively resisted oppression in defense of justice. The social and political context of martyrdom, therefore, is crucial here. And it's not based on active aggression, but rather kind of resistance to, to aggression. And um, this actually allows within the Alevi faith uh, for a sacred lineage that's uh, not based on birth, but rather on politically specific death at the hands of oppressors. So again, martyrdom does give activists a framework within which to create historiographies of events past and present, including not the not just the arson attack itself, but also the, the kind of predicaments that they uh, face during annual commemorations. 
Now, when uh, an activist commemoration is attempted to be blocked by um, uh, by by the authorities, um, um, leading figures of the uh, community participating in the event might call uh, the measure or these attempts as a continuation of previous massacres and centuries-long tyranny of hegemonic powers uh, that slew our, our uh, martyrs in history. So, uh, but what I'm kind of trying to emphasize here is that martyrdom uh, is actually serving as such a historiographical, historiographical framework here, um, due not only to its general religious significance, but also in a spatially specific way that has to do with spatial knowledge of Sivas and its history. Um, again, the spatially charged, um, visually mediated um, uh, kind of uh, representation of, you know, or a way in which the footage of the attack was broadcast is important here. Um, and um, first, this had a, a kind of a spatiality uh, that uh, has a kind of affected uh, memory of the event uh, due to uh, the kind of extensive use of long shots, right, through which the vastness of the crowd surrounding the hotel was was foregrounded. Secondly, uh, similarly, it um, uh, was actually experienced, the footage was experienced uh, dif- uh, kind of uh, unevenly, uh, differently across the viewership. Uh, and uh, this differentiation derived from well one's experience of having been Alevi and having become subjected to anti-Alevi uh, sentiments, uh, but also spatial knowledge of Sivas and its history. So um, Pir Sultan Abdal, uh, who is a 16, who's the 16th century minstrel, um, after whom the 1993 festival targeted by the arsonists was actually named, is significant here. So Pir Sultan. Is a, is a prominent martyr whose legacy is upheld by Alevis. Um, um, and he, 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 uh, he not only names uh, the, 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 or not, his name not only uh, kind of titled the festival that was uh, targeted in the arson attack, but he's also significant because he is reputed to have been hanged uh, in the 16th century uh, by the then Ottoman governor of Sivas uh, at a spot uh, not far from uh, the the Madmak Hotel itself, where the Sivas arson attack took place. So one activist in her uh, 20s that I talked to uh, drew this link between Pir Sultan, the arson attack victims, and the commemoration participants uh, in a spatial way. Uh, she suggested that Pir Sultan was murdered uh, just around the corner from where... Um, where uh, they are kind of uh, oppressing us today and where our martyrs were slain yesterday, yesterday meaning uh, the arson attack. Um, So actually a set of statues uh, that commemorate certain Alevi victims of the Sivas arson attack in their ancestral villages in uh, a certain region of Sivas that's known as the Emlek region are also known as martyrs' monuments. And they are modeled on a 1978 monument of uh, to Pir Sultan Abdal that is located in uh, this minstrel's native village, Banas, in rural Sivas. So in sum, um, I think martyrdom is significant to, to, the, to the commemorative culture around the, the arson attack, um, not only as a kind of ethnically based uh, religious trope, but also as a kind of politically specific and spatially informed one. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned these martyrs' uh, monuments they're built in these uh, Alevi villages after after the the Sivas arson attack, right? That that this happens. They're modeled after this or this older one, um, and uh, 
and then you bring up this point about about uh, geography having you know different layers of 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 histories of violence and and how you encounter these in unexpected unanticipated ways and and uh, something that you know you, you didn't really intend to work on or weren't looking into which is kind of cropped up in your in your uh, uh, research in your field work um, so I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit and you mentioned that you're when you were looking at uh, some of the the geography surrounding some of the monuments that you encountered these unexpected connections that people would make and and, and how they would interpret the present through the lens of violence in the past. Indeed. And um, the most uh, kind of salient references to those kind of other, seemingly other distinct uh, kind of histories of violence uh, being made here uh, was uh, with the Armenian genocide. So, um, and, and this indeed, to go back to my previous answer to, to, your, to your question, um, uh, this is part of the spatial knowledge of Sivas that I'm talking about that actually then renders... Uh, something like martyrdom uh, as being much more than just kind of an ethnic framework, a religious framework, uh, but also one that uh, is potentially continually open to these kind of unexpected encounters with with seemingly distinct histories that you're mentioning in your question. So Sivas province was home to a significant Armenian population prior to the genocide, um, nearly 15% uh, of its total population, according to the census, uh, the Ottoman census of 1914, um, which we have to take with a grain of salt because censuses had their shortcomings. And uh, in, in fact, the, the percentage, if anything, was was significantly higher in, in city centers. So as part of my fieldwork, I spent time in this rural region that I was mentioning um, uh, in, in Sivas province, uh, the region that's called the Emlek region, uh, where uh, today the concentration of Alevi villages is particularly high. An activist in his 50s uh, who hails from this region and uh, with whom I was exploring the landscape uh, at some point gestured uh, um, to a, a kind of tributary uh, bordering uh, one of the villages there as uh, Sevkiyat Brook. Uh, Sevkiyat meaning in Turkish consignment. So this is where uh, the activist explains uh the, the region's Armenians were gathered in 1915 and and deported eastward uh, by orders of uh, the then you know Ottoman government, uh, kind of uh, quote unquote consigned eastward. Right. So there were other uh, tributaries um, uh, that uh, those hailing uh, from the region called as, for instance, Kanlı or Bloody in Turkish or uh, Karanlı. Uh, which is kind of a word uh, that's corrupted from karanlık, uh, which means dark. So Kanlı Brook uh, witnessed uh, the uh, massacre of Armenians from another part of the region. Uh, the stream, uh, my interlocutor said, ran uh, blood red for months. Uh, now, when I kind of prompted them to elaborate on these vernacular names, um, the activists started to really, you know, actively discuss uh, the, their ancestors' uh, kind of relationship to uh, um, something like the Armenian genocide. So, one, for instance, said, "My grandpa was tasked with taking uh, uh, them, them meaning Armenians, further east. That's all he did. He didn't kill anyone. 
Another one uh, said uh, that the killers always came from Sunni villages, uh, Sunni uh, being uh, this other kind of um, uh, religious uh, kind of uh, community that is actually the, the kind of religious majority, uh, technically speaking, at least in, in Turkey still, and that is distinct from the Alevi minority. Um, and uh, another one said that Alevis did what they could Um, many Armenians sought refuge in our villages, but had we been able to do more back then, uh, what we later experienced might also have been different. Um, meaning, you know, uh, the kind of atrocities like, like Sivas arson attack that uh, took place, uh, much later in the, in the 20th century. So these conversations would, uh, return to the Sivas, um, Um, arson attack um, and and kind of uh, in indirect ways often not not so much in direct ways but but indirectly kind of interweave the arson attack in um, this history of the Armenian genocide now similar instance um, in a central Sivas during the activist commemorations actually involved this uh, kind of ap- apricot uh, orchard um, um, I would perhaps like to maybe avoid giving any lengthy stories or even you know, spoilers because the details are in the book, but suffice it to say here uh, that um, I discuss in this, this, this instance in the book where um, memory activists respond to the authorities attempts at blocking the commemoration um, by relating this experience, not only to something like Pir Sultan's hanging in the 16th century at a nearby spot, etc., but also to this seemingly unrelated uh, violent episode that is the Armenian genocide. Um, so if you piece together my conversations with, with uh, activists, as I try to do in the book, um, it shows that um, the Armenian genocide is an important historical locus among uh, a few select loci through which activists weave and continually reweave understandings of and interpretations of violent episodes like the arson attack um, and and more recent developments they found, find to be continuous uh, with it, uh, such as the oppressive attitudes they face during commemorations. And the point I make here is that this obliges us to attend to trans-ethnic and non-sectarian uh, connections Uh, that commemorative communities uh, draw between um, histories that are otherwise assumed to only concern a particular ethnic community. Hmm. What I thought was fascinating too is that there's this whole reading of the landscape that uh, it's almost uh, like a, this persistence of memory at the local level. Uh, um, There's this uh, you filtering, filtering, especially natural disasters. You mentioned are filtered through this understanding of of the landscape is almost like a, a cursed, cursed by the past. And uh, so, what you saw in Sivas, I think you mentioned, uh, is not isolated. The other scholars have have encountered this this reading of the landscape as as well. Exactly. Um, well. I discuss the, the more kind of disaster-related, in the sense of natural disasters, related aspect of this in, in, a, in an article, actually, a, a journal article that I wrote uh, for the Etude Armenienne Contemporaine um, in 2016. So listeners might be who are interested in this kind of uh, connection might, might be interested in that article. Uh, the, the kind of, um, in a nutshell, the kind of point that I, I, I make here, or the kind of uh, pr- uh, premise, really, Um, is that 
yeah, disasters and catastrophes, right? And 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 the Armenian genocide is often known uh, to, to to Armenians as a catastrophe, uh, in that most kind of literal sense of the word. Uh, we should we should think them together, right? So maybe <laughs> the the kind of affair of you know the issue of natural disasters are are um, are things that assume meaning and take effect in rela- in close relation in arguably inextricable relation with uh, the political disasters and catastrophes like uh, the Armenian genocide. I love the story that, that you told about the, the Citadel Museum, <laughs> that you you think that you're discovering the bones of, of, uh, of Kurdish victims, right? but uh, it, they turn out to be from a totally different time period and people want to just move away from that <laughs> as fast as possible. At the same time, there's this awareness that maybe this is the history that's that's coming around again yes indeed and in that article uh, where i discussed that kind of encounter um as an accidental encounter but i here use a specific notion of accidentality or ex- accident that i borrow from uh, anthropologist rosalind morris uh, because her uh, notion is that accidents take place in specific sites uh, due to their specific material spatiality Right, so they're not just accidents in, in, in kind of a vague, abstract, general sense, but but they're kind of there's a reason why they take place, where they take place, and that's the kind of notion of accident that I borrow from her. And um, yeah, I I kind of show how um, um, uh, there's a reason why that encounter with the bones there uh, happens there, and indeed there is actually if you look at the kind of uh, work of scholars like. Um, um, Adnan Çelik and Namu Kemal Dinch, who uh, have documented extensively oral uh, traditions, uh, well, what we now can call traditions, although they're uh, kind of more recent traditions than ancient traditions in Kurdistan, in Turkey's Kurdistan, where locals uh, kind of talk about specific landforms and name these landforms. And whatever kind of seemingly natural disasters uh, that might happen at these at these kind of uh, parts of the landscape in Kurdistan, um, um, as kind of a legacy of the Armenian genocide. Um, so um, there's a book that they wrote, which is a kind of oral history book that I would highly recommend. That's called Yuzuluk Ah, uh, which kind of translates as uh, a century-old curse. That's my translation, obviously. So the book is in Turkish, but those uh, of uh, among the listeners who uh, do speak Turkish might be interested in that book because that's a fascinating oral history that shows that indeed the local population to this day actually uh, speak of uh, parts of the landscape as yeah bearing the legacy of uh, the Armenian genocide. Now, would you put the the, the to return to the uh, to this prison uh, museum? I think you mentioned that. Uh, there's an incident. Well, I mean, this is the prison that wasn't converted into a museum, right? That uh, the outer walls were painted, and uh, this evokes a memory of uh, of of another earlier period of, of violence, at least uh, among prisoners who who experienced it. And would this be another case of an accidental encounter with the past? Surely, uh, in the sense of the the particular notion of accident that I again uh, kind of um, uh, borrow from from uh, Rosalind Morris, because this is technologically specific, right? 
So in that part of the book that you mentioned, I discuss um, this act of, you know, painting walls, which is seemingly very mundane and banal, in fact, um, can actually turn out to serve as a technology of of, con- of contending with violence and can do so in unexpected ways. So in 1980s, uh, the Arbukir prison, uh, a prominent torture method was to force uh, political inmates to paint the prison's walls with racist nationalist slogans and symbols. The torturers often spoke of the prison as a school um, and the forced painting uh, as a method uh, of educating the prisoners about becoming better Turks. So this technology was then repurposed by four prisoners who killed themselves by self-immolation in May 1982 to protest against the torture that was taking place inside the prison. Uh, The inmates had gradually and uh, surreptitiously stockpiled uh, the highly combustible materials they were forced to use in painting the walls. Uh, While this was doubtless an act of defiance against the anti-Kurdish violence uh, that was taking place inside the prison and beyond, actually, uh, veteran prisoners have um, recounted to me how it also had direct practical consequences. So the policy of forced painting indeed ceased to exist afterwards, uh, as the authorities feared further instances of self-immolation. Um, so they directly eliminated this this torture method. Uh, so come uh, the late 2000s, when discourses of confronting the past began to uh, figure prominently, and when uh, the Arbukir uh, prison's transformation into a memorial museum was being debated, the authorities wanted to uh, display their willingness to move on from the violent history by collaborating with uh, the local university's uh, art education department to decorate the prison's outer walls. The art students were instructed to decorate the outer walls of the prison with duplicates of uh, well-known paintings by Juan Miro and Pablo Picasso alongside education-themed uh, quotes from you know, early 19th century European intellectuals like Honoré de Balzac and statesmen like Henry Brown. Um, survivors of the prison uh, found this strikingly reminiscent of how the torturers had, had forced them to paint the inner walls as part of their so, so-called education in Turkishness. So there are these kind of technological aspects of the built environment uh, that serve as political mechanisms in their own right. And they bring along their own political meanings acquired through violent histories. Um, um, interesting. Uh, Lee, but also crucially, uh, former political inmates who served time in the 1980s, the Arbukir prison, and uh, with whom I talked, um, told me that when the building becomes a museum, uh, as they would like it to, they will repaint these murals themselves because uh, they would like everyone to see how torturous the act was in this context. So they aimed to kind of, uh, they have aimed to repurpose the violent associations of this kind of technology of painting for claiming their uh, own historiographical and political agency. After spending more than a decade at institutions such as University College London and the London School of Economics, Arai Scheiler is incoming professor of human geography at the University of Hamburg. He is the author of Victims of Commemoration, The Architecture and Violence of Confronting the Past in Turkey. Arai, thank you again for joining this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you so much indeed, Rick, uh, for taking the time to engage with the book so generously and carefully. 
Next month, we turn to the story of memory activism in Israel. We'll hear from Yifat Gutman, author of Memory Activism, Reimagining the Past for the Future in Israel-Palestine. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for listening to Realms of Memory.